this is a passage which uh, is probably very special to some of you. Um, certainly when I look at some of the verses in this passage, I've uh, seen God at work in different ways at different times. And I remember early on in becoming a Christian and trying to work out what all that was about, uh, this was a key passage in understanding the importance of prayer, for example. I know that some of you will look to this for uh, encouragement, advice on dealing with anxiety. Uh, I know that some of you have looked at this uh, in relation to issues of conflict and working through problems between people. It says all of these things and so much more, but one of the things I hope that we'll see today a little bit more clearly maybe than previously is this in the context of Philippians. So not just the topics, not just these verses, but how does this fit into the letter that Paul has written to this church? Um, why don't we pray uh, that God will be with us as we look at his word. Uh, pray that I'll speak clearly uh, and that we'll all be spoken to by God and know how to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter to the church in Philippi. Thank you for working through the Apostle Paul by your spirit, how to bring truth to their lives, and not only to them, but to other churches and to Christians down through uh, to millennia. Uh, whilst we may be familiar with the words in this passage, we pray that you'll help them to come to us fresh today, that we'll see things that we've not perceived and that we'll see things in our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in our attitudes and our actions uh, that can change. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you care for us, that you speak to us, and that you promise to be near us. Uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we pray that as we explore your word now, uh, you'll remind us of your goodness. Amen. One of the uh, sad things about being a Christian for a long period of time is that I've seen people end up casualties of the Christian faith. People who've started out well, but for various reasons have decided through things happening in their life that they can't believe anymore. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe there've been episodes in your life where you've either been that person or been very close to being that person. Uh, it's a sad story that we hear often, I think, that I used to be a Christian until. Um, and that until can take a whole range of different forms. Jesus reminded us that this would be the case in his parable of the soils. Uh, but so many of the letters of the New Testament are written to encourage Christians to persevere. And if they're written to encourage Christians to persevere, then the flip side of that is, for some people, it's going to be difficult to keep on going. Uh, we were encouraged last week by Ben, and, and I appreciated having the videos up that night. Thank you, Gary, because I was able to sit down and, uh, and watch the sermon. I was encouraged, as we all were, that God's agenda is to see us through to the very end. And that we're to keep on going, we're to remember that we're citizens of heaven and to press on uh, to home, to be with Christ. And we've seen through this letter that that is Paul's agenda for the Philippians. He wants them to continue, he wants them to push on. But there'll be things that threaten that. And I don't know whether you've noticed, uh, but 
it's been the case in each chapter so far that one of the big threats to people persevering to the end is conflict, disunity, the breakdown of relationships between people. You see it in chapter 1. Paul is talking about the different reasons why some people are preaching the gospel. Some are doing it out of motives that want to create trouble for Paul. And others are just being spurred on to do that. And Paul's emphasis is we need to be people who contend together as one for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 2, he shows us what that attitude will be like. The first few verses, he wants them to have one mind. He wants them to be united. He wants them to put others before themselves. And he points to the example of Jesus. And then to Timothy and to Epaphroditus and says, this is the way to unity. It's by not looking out for your own interests, not being entitled and feeling that your rights need to be met, but looking to the interests of others and serving the people around us. That's the way to create unity. Chapter 3, he looks at some external threats to unity. People who proclaim a different gospel. People who want to add things to the work of Christ. And he says, no, keep your eyes fixed on Christ and persevere till the end. When we get to chapter 4, the theme continues and in some ways it reaches a crescendo. When I look back on many of the reasons why people say to me that they are no longer Christian, one of the reasons that stands out in the midst of that is the breakdown of relationship with others. It might be I used to go to church until the church treated my family in this way. Or it might be that they've moved from one church to another because there was a relationship that was never resolved and it just seemed easier to escape it and to move to another place. But you can't keep doing that, can you? Well, as this letter is being read out uh, to the church in Philippi, and that's the way it would have been received, um, there weren't kind of photocopiers and everyone getting their own uh, copy of this. It wasn't kind of sent out in an envelope. Nobody got it by email. It was passed on and read out to the community. They would have had three chapters of listening to what's been said and then they would hear these words. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now he doesn't even simply say, I plead with the idea and Syntyche. He uses the word twice, I plead with you, idea, and I plead with Syntyche. Let, let me try and illustrate a little of how this might be felt. I've been away for the last week and I've heard some things about what's going on at Salt. And before I get to some other things, I just want to say, Marty Jewers, and Bruce Blackbell, please get over your conflict with each other. It's a little heavy, isn't it? How would you feel if it was your name? I don't know how to pronounce Euodia and Syntyche. But how would you feel in the congregation of God's people. And why would Paul do that? 
you know, there's a lot of people who were in that church and will never know their names. But Euodia and Syntyche, they are known by everyone who's read this letter for the last 2,000 plus years. Why single them out? He's not vindictive. He's putting others before himself. I, I take it that this is potentially the big issue in the church in Philippi. Chapter 1, unity in the gospel. Chapter 2, unity in the gospel. Chapter 3, unity in the gospel. Therefore, Euodia, Syntyche, I plead with each of you, contend together. Have the same mind. Remember the gospel. You've been united. Don't forget that. Work this through. This is not to lead to the breakdown of the church in Philippi. Because sadly, that is so often what happens. Do you know, I, I googled this afternoon how many Protestant denominations there are in the world today. That's denominations, by the way, not individual churches. 36,000 different Protestant denominations. To that, the Roman Catholics would go, see, told you. We've got the one Roman Catholic church. There's never been any division there. You see, the reality is conflict and breakdown have been with the church since the beginning. And it's a huge threat to people persevering. And the gospel is about uniting people. It's about bringing people together. It's about being at peace with God and peace with one another. It's about reconciliation. It's about loving relationships. It's, it's a body working together with each part doing its work it's got to do with stones being built together to create a, a temple, a building. It's got to do with a family where brothers and sisters love each other and encourage and rebuke and correct and train each other in righteousness. And Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they continue to the end, that they press on to reach the goal, that they work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who's at work within them to will and to act. And that has to filter down to the very practical realities of getting on with each other. We've been in this church now for four and a half years, Fiona and I. Um, and this is an issue that has impacted our church. You might have only been coming for a few weeks and, and not appreciate that. You might have been coming for six years and not appreciate that. And in God's kindness, we're not all affected by everybody's relationship or breakdown of relationships, but they've happened amongst us. I've spoken with people who have not been able to speak with somebody else. Can't go there. It's too painful. It's too difficult. There are people who are no longer here at SALT because they've not been able to work out a broken relationship here and so they've gone elsewhere. There are people who are here at SALT because they've had broken relationships elsewhere and have come here. I say that 
because we're dealing with reality here, not theory. And if it's not been true of our experience to date, then praise God. But I expect that it may become part of our experience in the future. And so we need to be prepared. And Paul isn't simply calling on these people to do something that's going to be too hard for them to do. When he urges Euodia and urges Syntyche and gets whoever this person is, the true companion, or it might be that his name was actually the Greek word they don't know how to translate as true companion, who knows, and Clement and the rest of the co-workers, when he's getting them together and getting them to focus on what's happening, he's not giving them uh, a command or he's not exhorting them to do something that is really never going to be able to be done. It's not too hard, in other words. It is hard, but it's not too hard. Because we've got the gospel and it's the gospel that enables us to be of the same mind. And we've got the spirit, we're united together, sharing in one spirit, chapter 2, verse 1. And we have God working in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. So nothing can be too hard if God is at work. So how do we then work through these difficulties and these conflicts? How can we be united and stop pulling apart. Well, I think what he goes on to say is a big part of the answer to that. In verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Um, it's easy to take verse 4 in isolation. Uh, it's easy to take a number of these verses in isolation. Verse 4, you've probably seen on a poster or a sticker. Um, Rejoice in the Lord, you've probably sung it as a chorus. But what is it saying in the context? Well, think about it this way. If you are genuinely rejoicing in the Lord, think, think about what that means. You know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Saviour. He has given his life for you. And he is reigning over you as king. He's prepared a place for you to go and be with God for all eternity. He's actually broken down the barriers that separate you from God and from each other. He has done all that's needed to unite you to one another. There is great reason for rejoicing. And how hard will it be to remain in conflict with someone when your focus is on the rejoicing in the gospel? I'll say it again, he says, rejoice. How can you be bogged down in disagreement when you have so much that unites you? When you've been shown incredible mercy by God, when you've received abundant grace by God, there is so much to be thankful for, joyous for. How can you be in conflict with one another? It's not just rejoicing in the circumstances, is it? It's rejoicing in the Lord. And you'll notice from the way I've highlighted on the outline there that this phrase rejoice in the Lord and being in the Lord comes up again and again in different ways. And rejoicing in the Lord is a massive theme in this letter. You, you see the joy, the gladness, the rejoicing oozing through every chapter. I've given you the references there to each use of the word. But it's a rejoicing in the Lord 
not a rejoicing in the circumstances. And I think one of the things that Paul does is he lifts our eyes to the Lord and all that we have in the gospel and helps us to overcome the things that weigh upon us on the horizontal plane that seem to tear and and break down relationships. Not only are we to rejoice in the Lord, but he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Very hard to be in conflict with other people and be gentle with them at the same time. When, when I think about the, the fights that I get involved in, the arguments, the, the disagreements, the, when my temper is raised, I'm not being gentle. In fact, if I was to be gentle, my temper probably wouldn't get raised. I probably wouldn't fall into the same patterns of conflict and, and, and argumentation. God calls upon us to be gentle in the way that we treat one another. I think it's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? I think it comes from God, therefore. So let your gentleness be evident to all. I take it, if, if I'm right in seeing that there is a flow of the argument here, that, that there's breakdown in relationships, that there's problems between these two women in particular, that, that Paul is emphasising something that is going to have benefits for the whole body. The gentleness being evident to all, it won't just help two women reconcile with each other, but it will help everybody to unite together as one for the gospel. He continues, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Um, I want to take this in, in, a, in a couple of ways. The first thing, though, is to continue the, the nature of the argument. See, so much of conflict and stress between people, I think, flows from anxiety. I'm, I'm worried that I don't have what I want and I need, that I'm not going to get my way. And so I, I fight and, and struggle and put others down in trying to get what I need or I think that I need that I'm anxious that I won't have. But he says, don't be anxious about anything. Yes, there will be concerns. Yes, there will be struggles. Yes, you, you might not know what the future holds or how things are going to work out. You might not get your own way. But don't be anxious about that. Instead, talk to God about it. By prayer and petition, ask God for what you need. In fact, we'll see next week when we look at chapter 4, verse 19, that God promises to meet every need that we have according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say every desire that you have, every want that you have, everything that you feel you deserve, but he does promise to meet every need. And if we will learn to trust him with that, to, to come before him and to pray, rather than to remain anxious, then again, I think we will live in loving relationship rather than fighting and squabbling for what we don't have. 
Now, this can be a, a, a troubling verse, can't it? Verse 6. Um, this is not a talk on anxiety. Uh, this is a talk on Philippians chapter 4, but anxiety is a topic that gets mentioned here. And anxiety is something that is so prevalent in our community. Um, I, I read the stats just this afternoon that one in four people experiences anxiety in some form or other. It's, it's, it's widespread. And the danger, I think, for some of us is we can read a verse like, do not be anxious about anything and feel more anxious because we've been told not to feel anxious. So it kind of comes a little bit like the, um, well, not that it happens these days, but in, in my day at school, like the principal with his big cane saying, do not be anxious. And you imagine that if, if Paul was writing this letter with the aid of... Uh, of modern computers, he'd probably put in bold and all caps, do not be anxious about anything. But I don't think it's coming that way. Um, maybe a better picture of what's going on is, is the little child who wakes from a nightmare and runs into the mother and tells the mother she's had a bad dream and the mother says, don't be anxious about anything. I'm here with you. God loves you. You can snuggle up to me. You see how I can read that verse so differently? I think God knows that we suffer from anxiety, that we worry, that we struggle. I don't think that we're being beaten up with this verse. But he's saying, come to me when you're anxious come and talk to me about it open up to me let me know your your needs let me know your desires let me know your problems bring them to me and then he gives this promise and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus the word there for guards your hearts and your minds, it's, it's literally the word garrison. Um, and I imagine that for Paul, who's in prison, remember when he writes this, there would be people guarding the prison. They'd be around the perimeter. And he speaks of the peace of God, which transcends understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus that as we come to God in prayer, and the great privilege it is to be able to do that, because it's been made possible by God breaking down the barriers and welcoming us as reconciled children into relationship with him, as we're invited to come before him and to share our needs, so God protects and guards our hearts and our minds. He draws them away from conflict and division into the security of relationship with him. And then, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now again, let's, let's try and follow a thread through here. He's saying, be united, be of one mind in the Lord. Um, remember and rejoice in what you've got from God in the gospel. Therefore, be gentle with one another. God's near. Don't be anxious, stressing about these things, but tell God what you need and, and he will guard your hearts and your minds and think about these things. Again, it's unlikely that Syntyche and Euodia would be at each other if they are spending time thinking about things that are excellent and praiseworthy, things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. If their mind is focused on these things, then whatever conflicts, whatever divisions, whatever friction there is between God's people is put into its right perspective. And not only are you to think about these things, but of course to put them into practice. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. See, Paul's asking them not to do something that he hasn't done, but something that he continues to work at and models to the Christians in Philippi. He teaches them the gospel. He lives out that gospel. Timothy taught them the gospel and lived out the gospel. Epaphroditus, same. Clement, same. He's calling Euodia and Syntyche to be the same, to follow his example, to apply the gospel to their circumstances, to look to put it into practice. Friends, as we look at a, a passage like this, which talks about two people being united so that the church might not be divided, so that people might work together for the cause of the gospel, it's really quite simple in so many ways, but it's really hard to do. And I think it's hard to do because we continue to be people whose lives are affected by sin. So we get in the way, the devil gets in the way. And we continue to live in a world where we suffer, where things don't go the way that we want, where we don't always get what we want, where people don't treat us the way that we should be treated. But the way forward is clear. The way forward is for us to continually focus ourselves and each other on the gospel to fill our mind with things that are excellent and praiseworthy, I think at its core, it means to dwell deeply on the gospel. To be reminded through the word of God just how gracious and good is our God and Father. 
And when I was reflecting on this over the last few days, I was reminded that we've seen so much of that. Even looking at the book of Exodus last term, we see the God who is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's forgiving. We've seen the picture of that in Christ as we've looked at Matthew, as we've looked at the Philippians, as we did that series, uh, was it last year? I can't remember, on, on love. Or the year before, or maybe the year before. COVID years just blur, don't they? We have so many reasons to be confident that God can work out whatever conflict we find ourselves in with our brothers and sisters. But this passage reminds us that we need each other. He calls upon Clement and the others and his true companion to help these women. Have you seen people struggle? Have you struggled in conflict yourself? Dare I ask, is there somebody that you're still in conflict with? Someone, if they sat down beside you right now, you would feel uncomfortable. Is there work to do? Do you need to be applying the gospel? Remembering all that you've been given? Asking God for what you need? Putting them before yourself? Do you need to ask a Christian friend to help you work it out? Because seeing the gospel unite God's people together is a wonderful testimony to the reality of God continuing to be at work today. It's a sad thing when churches grow by splits, but it happens. And in God's providence and kindness, he works through bad things to bring about good results. Just look at the persecution of the church in Acts chapter 8. But I wonder sometimes whether we've kind of given up too quickly. Maybe because our pride will get damaged. Maybe because we've not been seeing such reconciliation happen around us. And so I want to ask you today, just think about this. If you're not in a conflict at the moment, then praise God. Pray for those who might be. Be willing to do the hard yards of getting alongside each other if it's difficult. How about we pray? Father, if we are feeling like there's someone we don't want to be around, someone that we can't get on with, if we're feeling the pain of damaged and broken relationships, 
We do pray that you'll be at work in us, in our minds, in our hearts. We pray that you'll be at work amongst us, between people, that you'll give us a, a generosity of spirit, that you'll help us to, to see how much you've forgiven us in the gospel, that you'll help us to be gentle with each other and prayerful and to focus on things that are pure and right and excellent and praiseworthy. May we be people who genuinely live out the good news, people who know your peace, not just as a, a fuzzy sentiment, but as a, a transformational peace that brings enemies together, that breaks down conflict. And we pray for, for any amongst us who are hurting in this way, struggling with broken relationships. And we, we pray for your healing and we pray for help. And Father, for, for those among us also who might be feeling overwhelmed by worry, uh, stressing about things in our lives, uh, we ask that you'll remind us of, of your loving goodness, your compassion, your, forgo your forgiveness, your promise to never leave us. Remind us that you're near, that you care, and that you are with us every step of the way, even in the darkest of times. Um, may we not despair. May we not give up on you or on our brothers and sisters when things are hard, but help us to keep our eyes fixed on the gospel and the good news that transforms hearts and minds. Amen.